Turn please to Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I want to read beginning with verse 17. Philippians 3, 17 through chapter 4 and verse 1. Now that you've found that, please please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. And I pray that you would overcome any resistance that we might have to, to your word. We know that uh, there are times, some greater, some less, even the minds and hearts of believers, that our hearts are resistant uh, to you. And so we pray that you would, uh, Holy Spirit, break through that by the power of this word, that, that it would accomplish, this word would accomplish uh, the purpose for which it has been sent, we pray in our lives that it has been been sent to bring us closer to Christ, to increase our faith, to cause us to walk with Him. This, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Philippians chapter three, verse seventeen. Now, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you you have in us. For many of whom I have often uh, told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, Paul has a tremendous affection for this particular congregation, this particular group of people, these Christians in Philippi. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 1. He refers to them as my brothers. He refers to them as whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. So he has a great affection for them. And it's important for us to understand that. What he's writing to them comes out of not only his love for Christ, but his love for them. This is a real person writing to real people. Sometimes I think the reason I like reading the letters in the New Testament is that I simply enjoy reading other people's mail. But I realize after too long that this isn't other people's mail. It may have originated as such, but we understand that this is now to us. And the very affection with which Paul writes to them, we understand God writes to us. So there's great affection. And so in the midst of that affection, Paul has in his heart for this group of people the highest desire he could possibly imagine. And that is that they're able to stand firm in Christ. You'll notice in verse 4, he says to them, stand firm thus in the Lord. He has great affection, so he desires for them the greatest thing he can imagine, and that is that they would stand firm in Christ. Because you see, if they're not standing firm, he realizes that their, their, their faith is, is, is being attacked, that their faith is weakening, that their walk with Christ is not strong, and he understands if that's the case, then their ability to rejoice and to be secure in the midst of a world like this will be declining. And so he desires for them to stand firm in the Lord. And so you say, well, what means would he give them so that they would be able to stand firm in the Lord? And I think if you and I were making a list of, of things for people to Uh, stand firm in the Lord. If someone came to us and says, how can I stand firm in the Lord? We would say, no doubt, you need to know the very word of God. You need to meditate upon it and feed upon it. It needs to be your very life. You need to hide God's word in your heart. 
and you would say you need to pray, you need to cast all your anxieties and all your desires, your very life upon God, and He'll be merciful to you and to help you. You would say, and avail yourself of the sacraments to help you to increase your faith. Gather together with the people of God so that in so gathering you can encourage one another on in the faith and so forth and so on. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't put it quite like that. He doesn't give that particular list to these people that he loves so dearly. What he says to them, notice in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. He says, Watch me. I want you to stand firm in the faith. And to help you do that, I want you to imitate me. Now that's a very, very dangerous thing for someone to say. It's dangerous because it opens yourself up to uh, their affection and their affirmation, but also their criticism. Paul's saying, listen, I'm willing for your behalf, on your behalf, to live my life in a fishbowl. I don't know how many of you live your life or understand that you live your life in a fishbowl, unless your last name is Vogler, but that's a very dangerous place to be. But Paul says that I care enough for you, that I'm willing to live my life in such a way as to consciously know that you're watching me. To consciously know that you're watching me and in watching me this will affect your life in Christ. And in watching me I have the anticipation that it will actually enable you, help you to stand firm in the Lord by watching and therefore imitating me. And they say, Paul, that sounds rather egotistical, but it isn't egotistical because he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's just not me, but it's others as well. In fact, he's able to say this to them because he said explicitly other places why it is that he can say this. For instance, and you don't need to turn to this, I'll just grab a sentence very quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says to them, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so Paul says, listen, imitate me, not because I've already obtained it. He's already told them and he hasn't obtained it. He hasn't arrived yet. He, he hasn't been perfected yet. So don't imitate me because I've arrived, but imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. I'm following after Christ. So much so that when I'm following after Christ, I'm thinking of Him and I'm thinking of you. So that in His mind, the decisions that He makes, He's making knowing they're watching. And He's making knowing that their watching of Him will impact their own faith. He says that pretty explicitly in, in chapter 1, for instance, in verse 25. That little passage, Paul was kind of going back and forth about dying and living. And he says, for him to live is Christ, to die is gain. And there's a certain sense in which, because dying is such great gain, to be able to be in the very presence of Christ, that he desired to die. But he came to the conclusion, he was likely to live. And so in verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because, my, because of my coming to you again. He says, listen, here's, here's the reason I'm willing to live on with joy and that is because I'm interested in your progress and your joy in the faith. So you get this sense that when Paul's making decisions, he's thinking, well, if I go here or I go there, how will it affect the people in Philippi? As he writes to the church in Corinth, he said, he said I'm, I've, I've foregone taking a believing wife with me. I could do that. I have every right to do that. The other apostles do that, but I'm not because he was concerned to give himself wholly for them. He didn't get paid by the church in Corinth 
for the work that he did there, the ministry he did there, rather he worked with his own hands so that nothing would get in the way of him being able to present Christ to them and then receiving Christ from him. Every decision that Paul made, he was making thinking of the faith of someone else. How can I benefit them? In Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, you can read these at your leisure, Paul speaks about what we call disputable matters in the church. Things that you could do it or not do it. If you do it, it's not necessarily sin. If you don't do it, it's not necessarily sin. Uh, Disputable matters, things that Christians can debate about whether they should or whether they shouldn't. But the driving principle in Paul's life was to think, how will my doing of this affect the faith of another Christian? Because he knew that he was being watched. And in knowing that he was being watched, Paul tells us that that, that we should understand that we learn a great deal about the faith by watching other Christians. That's true in all spheres of life. It's true in our family. I mean, one of the fun things about getting to know the children in the church is that you get to know a great deal about their parents. Because children imitate their parents. They talk like their parents. They have attitudes like their parents. And so it's just interesting to watch the children grow. In fact, when Karen and I do the premarital uh, marathon uh, every spring for three or four months, uh, it's interesting to hear about what these couples have learned from their parents about marriage and and we try to get them to understand the expectations that they're entering the marriage with just because of what they've picked up from their from their parents some things are taught but so much in life is caught in fact we have a uh, an interesting uh, discussion always when we simply ask uh, who do you expect to take out the garbage in your once you're married and then after we walk through that we say who took it out it's always the other one, by the way. If, 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 after we ask that, we always ask, who took out the trash at home in your own families? And it's so interesting, the expectations that just get built up by, by just living life together. So Paul knows that, that, that we're affected by one another. Advertisers, advertisers live on this fact that we'll be affected by the lives of others and so they pay $90 million to some high school kid to sell shoes. Because they think that others will follow along. Uh, I remember as a kid growing up uh, just north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, every little kid in the late 1950s, although I'm not that old, in the 1960s, every little kid who played Little League Baseball came to bat, they dug around in the dirt, and then they took their head and they went... And they did that, not because it helped their batting, they, they didn't know why they did that, but every little kid did that because Roberto Clemente did that. He had a bad back. We didn't know. We just thought you did that because you batted. But every little kid did that because you just learn, you mimic one another all the time. Businessmen know that. If you're training a new employee, you want to put them with someone that they'll watch who is working the way you want them to work. And so we learn, we pick up from those kinds of things. It's true spiritually. Sometimes you pray with people. You know what church they go to. Because we learn to pray alike. To say things alike. And so Paul knows that that this learning from one another is of such great importance that he says, all right, I'm going to help you stand firm in the faith by living my life before you. You want to know what these words mean? Watch me. If you want to know what it means to follow Christ? Watch me. If you want to know what it means to, 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 to... Desire to know the power of the resurrection of Christ. Watch me. If you want to know what it means to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, 
watch me, imitate me, and those uh, who are examples as well in the faith. He says, be careful. Be careful who you watch. Because there are some that you might even be looking at even now, he says, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice verse 19, he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. It's a very significant thing for Paul. Even in thinking about this as he's writing from prison, he's, he's thinking and even tears come to his eyes because he thinks of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ who are living in such a way as to mock Christ and that, that hurts his own heart. And then to think that others might be following that, that example hurts him even more. And so he says there's nothing that could be more devastating than that. So, so even with tears, even now, I, I'm going to tell you there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And an enemy of the cross of Christ must be someone who sets himself up against the purposes of the cross. The purpose of the cross, of course, is to reveal the glory of God. It's to reveal to us the holiness of God. It's to reveal to us even the love of God. It's to reveal to us that there's a way that one can be saved from the wrath of God, but only through faith in Christ. It reveals that indeed we are sinners without hope, Except God. And accept God through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you set themselves up against that and say, no, I can live on my own. No, I don't need this. No, I don't need Christ. Those are enemies of the cross of Christ. And, and Paul doesn't delineate exactly who those are. He doesn't need to because he, he's told them about these people so many times. If they would simply come to his mind, oh yes, we know those. It could be perhaps those he refers to in chapter 1 and verse 28 as opponents, notice, he says, and not frightened by anything, by your opponents. There are those who opposed vigorously and obviously and visually who opposed the cross of Christ and opposed Christians and were actually persecuting them. Now, it's unlikely that Paul met those people because you would think they wouldn't imitate them. But you do get the impression that Paul would be saying, don't imitate them, but imitate me as I deal with that kind of persecution. Don't let them see you're afraid. Don't let them see that you're frightened. But stand up to them. Because you're standing up to them in faith, in Christ, will be a sign of your deliverance and their destruction. So imitate me as I deal with those opponents. And then in chapter 2, he deals with those in their very midst. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the, also to the interests of others. There must have been those in Philippi who were rivals with each other in ministry in some way, who thought themselves better than the others. Do you get the impression that they're putting yourself against the interest of Christ? Because then he goes on to say, have the mind of Christ, not this kind of mind. Don't follow that way. Don't live like that. There's rivals with each other putting yourself over others, but rather live in such a way that puts the interests of others ahead of your own. It was interesting when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, the, the people in Corinth, uh, you might remember, uh, were struggling to believe that there really was a resurrection from the dead that was to come. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but they were struggling to think that they too were going to be raised from the dead, thinking instead, no doubt, that everything that had to happen had already happened. That when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, that was it. That they had made it and that they had arrived. In fact, 
Early in that letter, Paul writes to them rather sarcastically. It's a holy sarcasm, but it's sarcasm nonetheless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8, he writes this. He says, already you, have all what you, already you all have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And, what, and would that you did reign so that we might share this rule with you. Paul's saying, listen, you think you're kings already. I wish you were because we'd come and join you in the palace. But right now we're getting beat up. Verse 9, for, you, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Uh, you are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. He's saying, listen, you guys think you've made it. Well, if you've made it, then it means we haven't. But the point is, none of us have made it. But there are some who think themselves better. And Paul says, don't. Don't follow them. They stand as enemies. They don't have the mind of Christ. And of course, he goes on in chapter 3 and he speaks of those who are uh, enemies of the cross of Christ to the degree that they put confidence in their own flesh and their own righteousness verse 3 of chapter 3 for we are the real circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh in other words don't don't follow after those who put confidence in their own righteousness because you see if there was confidence you could have in your own righteousness Christ would not have needed to come. So trust in Him. They stand as enemies of the cross because they're pulling people away from the cross of Christ. And notice the characteristics. Verse 19, he says, their end is destruction. That is, they're not leading to life. Their end is destruction. You remember when you were kids, some of you are kids, so you remember this fairly recently, I'm sure, when your mother said to you, if your friend jumped off the bridge, would you jump off too? Of course, the answer to that question is, maybe. Uh, but your mother's point is, of course you wouldn't, because you know that leads to destruction. And Paul's saying, don't follow after these, because it leads to destruction, because destruction is real. For instance, in, uh, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, in verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, this is evident of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he's saying just the very fact that you're being persecuted means judgment is going to come because God is just and he will afflict those who are afflicting you. That's a sign of the truth of the judgment of God. But then he goes on in verse 9 to explain that more explicitly. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed 
the apostle says what they will experience is eternal destruction not destruction in the sense that it that it ends at a particular moment in time but this being destroyed continues on for all eternity they live not with life and not in life but they live destroyed sometimes when people go through a very difficult thing people in reflecting upon it say their life is now destroyed that will destroy their life of course that's never true for a Christian but we understand the sentiment we understand what people are trying to express at that point they're going to continue on but it really won't be life as they wanted it really won't be life as they expected it really won't be life as life should be lived because of that disappointment and here the apostle is saying this is eternal destruction their life really is destroyed this is reality they're moving to destruction which will be for all eternity separated from the goodness from the grace from the love from the security from the blessing of God they'll only be under his wrath from that moment forward for all eternity their life really will be destroyed that's real so Paul's saying this is serious Life is not a board game. That if you have a bad role or you don't do so well, you can put it back in the box and open it up another time and everything will be better. This is for real, this life. And there are those who are leading others to destruction. Paul says, don't follow them. That's real destruction. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ those who don't submit to Christ are on their way to destruction. Don't follow them. Don't imitate them. Don't go there. One author puts it like this. He says, always remember that right now counts forever. Don't have your mind on earthly things. Have your mind on understanding that there is an eternity. And so you need to know that. And take this life seriously. Be careful who you watch. Be careful who you imitate. Because it isn't a matter of will you learn from others. It's a matter of what you will learn from whom. So be cautious on who you watch. So he goes on. He says their end is their destruction. He says their God is their belly. I love that expression. I'm a guy. Uh, but their God is their belly. But his sense is very real. They live according to their passions. Whatever it is that can satisfy that hunger pain, that groan, or whatever it is, whatever can satisfy that, that they will do. They will pursue that. It has nothing to do with eating generally, but everything to do with just an attitude of mind that says, I'm going to pursue what makes me happy at the moment. And thus their appetites, their passions have become their God. But of course, that's being an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's exactly the opposite of the cross of Christ. Because you see, they think if they fill up their stomachs, figuratively speaking, then all will be well. And once well fed in their own minds, everything is, is very, very good. But you understand that I have met many, many people who come and sit in my office and say, and who look fine and tell me they feel fine, but say they've just been to the doctors and he says they have cancer. And what they've had to do is to take their feeling fine and feeling full and submit it to an authority who knows more about their body than they do. And what we need to do is take our very souls and lay them through the, before the authority of Christ. And we may feel good and we may think everything is just fine. 
But the question is, what does Christ see? What does he see when we lay our lives before his authority? And the cross tells us what he sees. What he sees is that apart from the grace of God, we're sinners. And we deserve what Jesus got. That's the truth, you see. So that's the real condition of your soul. No matter if you feel full or not, that's the condition of your soul apart from Christ. And he says, therefore, you must come to him and turn away from your sin and confess your sin and embrace Christ alone, trust him and say, yes, he is my Savior. He has paid for my sins. He is my righteousness. And anyone who doesn't do that, anyone who lives simply to satisfy their own passions, is not one who's a friend of the cross of Christ, but one who's against the cross of Christ. And then he goes on to say about them this. He says, not only is their end destruction, their God is their belly, but they also glory in their shame. I suppose in a very gross way. You could get a certain sense of this if you watched three minutes of the Jerry Springer show. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? People glorying, really, let's be honest, I'm not trying to drag mud before us, but they glory in their shame. The very things they should be ashamed of, they broadcast. He says, that's what happens, you see. When people live according to their own passions, they glory in what ought to be their shame. And they're not seeing it. They're not getting it. Paul speaks of this in Romans in chapter 1. I won't read it all, but if you begin with verse 18 in that passage and move to verse 32, he concludes with this. You know that passage. It's the passage of, of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We're all guilty of. And then God's judgment of giving people over to their own desires and just sort of letting them live that out. And his final um, conclusion is this in verse 32 of that chapter. He says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They encourage the practice of them, even in others, even knowing that these are shameful things, because their conscience is God. Prophet Jeremiah quotes God. He says, They no longer know how to blush. There's no shame. You see it in politics, where there are political maneuverings going on that are unethical, but yet the vote is cast, the politician wins, and they glory in their shame. You see it in the materialism of our culture, where success is gauged on possessions and the accumulation of possessions. And yet with the disparity of possessions so great, and yet people glory in that they have an accumulation greater than others. We see it in the context of sexuality probably as clearly as anywhere, where we see people who are living together and unmarried with no shame at all, as if that's all right. We see people going through divorces by simply saying, well, we weren't getting along. It just didn't feel right. It just wasn't right. And so divorce, and there's no shame to that. It's as if that's right to do. We see in the context of the homosexual community, people living in homosexual relationships, glorying in what should be shame. 
We see people in the midst of adulterous affairs glorying in what should be their shame. You turn on the TV, you watch movies. I don't even need to go there with you. You understand what I'm saying. Our culture glories in its shame. And we dress it up and we make it pretty and we make it attractive. And the, the most famous of people and the most attractive of people and the wealthiest of people live in such a way as to glory in what should be their shame. We see in the context of, of intellect, we see people glorying in what should be their shame because they cast down the truth of Christ with great intellectual argument and yet that's wrong. And yet they write books and they get full professorships and so forth and so on. It's a glorying in what should be our shame. In the context of our looks, we spend time improving Obviously, I don't. Improving the outside of our persons, even to the point of all kinds of cosmetic surgeries and all kinds of augmentations in our lives so that we can look better and look better and we glory in, the, in our vanity. See? And to renounce the cross of Christ and not embrace it. To stand before Christ and say, I don't need you. It's the glory in your shame. So he says, don't follow them. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame because you see, their minds are set on earthly things. They're not thinking of eternity. Paul says, don't watch them. Don't imitate that. So you say, okay, Paul, who do you imitate? Verse 20. He says, but our citizenship, those who Follow the example that you have in us from verse 17. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. First and foremost, he says, follow those who who really do understand that their citizenship, their belonging is in heaven and they're going to live in such a way on earth as if they were living in heaven. We're going to follow the culture and the righteousness and the rules of heaven even here on earth. Follow them. Follow them who understand the lordship of Christ. Notice, he says he's the one who will transform our lowly body by the power that enables him uh, even to subject all things to himself. He's the one to whom all things are subject. Even our passions. Follow those who submit these passions to him. In fact, we've been given examples of various ones as we've been reading through uh, this letter to the Philippians. So let me point them out. For instance, Timothy. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul writes this about Timothy. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So listen, if you're going to emulate someone, emulate Timothy. Timothy gets it. Timothy has the mind of Christ. Because Timothy's seeking after the well-being of others, so much so, he's willing now to come to you. Even in the midst of your persecution, he's willing to come to you, to bring Christ to you, and to help you, because he's interested in your well-being. He's willing to sacrifice his own convenience, sacrifice his own safety, sacrifice his own future, and he's willing to come to you. You want to follow somebody, follow Timothy. And then he goes on in verse 22 of chapter 2 but as you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see 
I will go with me and I trust in the Lord Jesus that surely I myself will come also. He's saying, listen, you're going to follow Timothy because he puts the interests of others ahead of his own and he's proven. Follow proven ones. Watch them. Follow proven ones. Often in the context, again, of this premarital deal that Karen and I do, uh, folks will come and say, they talk to me about, about uh, investing money or about uh, insurance. And they say, do you know somebody who's really good who can help me in this? And I give them this counsel. say, go to church, find out who's in that business, and watch their lives. See if they've proven themselves to be real followers of Christ. I wouldn't pick the ones necessarily who have the most money or the biggest houses or any of that. Watch their lives. Can you trust them? Are they proven? Paul says Timothy was proven. So, emulate him. Epaphroditus was proven. Notice in verse 29 of that same chapter, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You want to emulate somebody? You probably don't. Not this guy. Emulate those who are willing to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. Follow them. They get it. They understand. Their minds are set not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. They understand what it means that the mind of Christ to set aside your convenience, your safety, and all of that, and to follow after Christ. Follow. Find somebody like that. Follow people like that. Then in chapter 3, he says, there are those who, who trust in their own flesh. He says, don't follow them. Don't trust in your own flesh. Notice verse 3, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Follow somebody like that. Follow somebody who understands that their righteousness is from Christ alone. In verse 10 of that same chapter 3, Paul writes of himself, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him by, in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Follow those people who desire to know Christ and who are pressing on to know him. All of those people who really understand that their citizenship is in heaven. We influence each other all the time. So the question that has to come next is this. Are you a person that can be imitated? Are you living your life in such a way that if somebody watched you, they would be standing more firm in the faith? Can you really be imitated? You see people are watching us all the time. Again, when I baptize people, when I baptize a baby especially, I say, now remember, you're to live your life in such a way that enables this child to see Christ. We should always be thinking in every decision that we make, how is this going to affect the faith of somebody else? How is this going to affect the children in the church? How is this going to affect my peers in the context of the body of Christ? How is this going to affect the body of Christ generally? These decisions that I make. I mean, it's summer. The days are nice. Great to sleep in, isn't it, on Sunday mornings. But you know, when you make that decision, how does that affect your children? How does that affect others in the body of Christ? All these decisions are important, you see, because they have ripple effects. They affect others. Are you a person who's pressing on to know Christ? And you can say to other people, watch me. And it will help you 
in your faith. When I do a wedding, I always remind the people who are present there that they are to live their lives so that this couple will be encouraged in their life together. It's important to know that. We affect each other's lives. We do. A couple of passages very quickly. I know it's afternoon, but that's okay. You can go out to the restaurants. There'll be money on the table when you get there. Um, thank you very much. So nice. Probably came from the Methodists because they get out at about five till. And so it'll be really, really good. Um, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6. This is for fathers. And then I have one for everybody. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6. Grandchildren, my version says, grandchildren of the crown of the aged. This is what I want you to get, the second part of this verse. And the glory of children is their fathers. We impact our children. They watch us. And the goal of every father is to be the pride of their children. Not the worship object of their children, but to be the pride of their children. Dad, you've got to know that your children watch you and they listen to you. And what you do, they will do. Sometimes just simply, instinctively, it will just... You need to always be thinking that. The words that you say, watch your language. Watch how you speak to their mom. Watch how you speak to their siblings. Watch how you talk about others. Because they will pick that up. Watch your work ethic because they'll learn that from you. Watch how you treat those who are sort of less fortunate, shall we say, than perhaps your family. Because they'll learn that from you. Watch your attitudes about money and about things and about possessions and about women. They'll learn that from you. And what you want is for them to grow up respecting you. Saying, yeah, my dad, okay, maybe he can't beat up your dad. I tried to dispel that one pretty quickly. Uh, maybe he can't beat up your dad, but no. I respect him. You don't have to be the richest dad. You don't have to be the smartest dad. You don't have to have the most stuff. But you need to be respectable. Your kids will pick that up as you walk with Christ. Psalms. Psalm 119, verse 74. The psalmist, after a rather typically bad day, psalmists have those. We're, we're blessed that God was gracious to us by putting David and others through difficult times and then working in them to be able to express that in a way that was infallible for us to learn about hearts. And so on a typically bad day for the psalmist, he writes in verse 74 of Psalm 119, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word, the psalmist realizes that he's being watched. 
And even in the context, it seems, of his trouble, he's living out an intentional life to favorably affect the faith of others. So his prayer here and his desire is that those who fear you, that is, those who know God, those who fear you shall see me, that is, they've been watching, and the end result of their watching is rejoicing even though I'm having trouble. And the reason that they'll rejoice even though I'm having trouble is this, because I've hoped in your word. And they will have seen then that the word of God is powerful to enable the psalmist to persevere even in times of difficulty. And so he knows that even in times of difficulty, he's being very productive for the kingdom. He's being very productive because others are watching him and saying, yes, the word of God works. The word of God is powerful. So Paul could say, imitate me, because I've hoped in the word of God. I've hoped in the cross of Christ. I know this is true. Watch me. Watch me rejoice in the midst of suffering. Watch me rejoice, even though others are disparaging my name. Watch me in the midst of this land. You'll be glad. I entreat all of us, myself most and most, I suppose. And we need to understand first that we need to watch each other to be encouraged in the faith. People come to me from time to time and say, Bill, don't you think we ought to start a college church? And I say, no, because then they'll just watch each other. And college students need us old people to watch. And I tell students all the time, come to church, get involved, start watching. Start watching. Pick out people to emulate in your life. That's why the church exists. I can't tell you how many times people come into my office, couples, married couples, and say, we'd be divorced now if it weren't for the so-and-sos. And I'd say, well, how did they help you? And they simply say, we've watched their marriage. The other couple didn't even know that. And we've watched them. We've watched them raise their kids. So I've been able to raise my kids, you see. It's important. And then please, church, understand that people are watching you. We don't need to live a paranoid life, but we need to live a consistent life. We need to live an intentional life, understanding that the decisions that we make affect other people. And thus we need to be excited about the fact that when we make godly decisions, even when we make sacrificial decisions for the sake of Christ, and others will see that, and not glory in us, but others will see that, and their faith will increase. And they will be enabled to stand firm in the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for your kindness, we give you thanks. And for your help, we're so grateful. And we pray for ourselves at this point that you would send to us and enable us to see in one another points that we can emulate that will help us stand firm in the faith and we pray that we would be a company of people who understand our responsibility here and take great delight in it that we can live in such a way as to encourage others in their life with you help us do that enable us to be such a community of believers in Jesus name Amen please stand for the benediction As you do, I remind you there'll be elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Please, the program Friday evening is is for your joy uh, to come.
and encourage our children. Um, the response to the benediction is out of our passage, and it's simply this, my citizenship is in heaven, amen. And when you're saying that, what you're saying is, I want to live my life in such a way, to live by the rules of heaven, even on earth, knowing that there will be those who will be watching, and I can enable them to stand firm in the faith. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power, that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, my citizenship is